I am talking today with Seattle Police Department Detective Beth Waring, who investigates hate and bias crimes. With attacks on Asian Americans surging in the United States, I wanted to find out what kind of incidents she is seeing in Seattle. I also wanted to take this opportunity to find out what a hate crime is, how it is defined, how it is investigated. We then look at the many different types of hate crimes and all that the Seattle Police Department does to protect and serve these communities. Detective Waring has been in law enforcement for 24 years. She began with the Linwood Police Department and she has been with the Seattle Police Department since 2015. In addition to talking about hate crimes, we also get very personal. I ask her about the rewards of the job and why she became a police officer. She discusses her deep concern for the well-being of her fellow officers during this trying time for law enforcement and the importance of peer support and officer wellness. Detective Waring shares her vision for what lies ahead for police work. And in her words, we need to walk into the future with our whole hearts and a lot of courage. Detective, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So if I could just start out with what is your role? I am the bias crimes coordinator for the Seattle Police Department and the bias crimes unit. It's a kind of a little subunit. I understand you're within the homicide unit. Correct. It's, it's actually technically called the homicide and assault unit. So it's crimes against people where an assault typically occurs, but it can also include incidents like harassment, for example. To begin, it would be helpful to understand how a hate crime is defined and then whether it's federal, state, county, or municipal. Actually, they are at all those levels. So there is a federal law with regard to hate crimes. There are uh, several of them, actually, that cover very specific things. State law, which is typically what we're operating under, is the Revised Code of Washington. That is the hate crime offense law. And that covers typically, I think, what we think of ancestry, origin, ethnicity, race, religion, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, and disability. In the city of Seattle, uniquely, we have a municipal code that adds five other categories at the misdemeanor level. All the ones that I described at the state level under the RCW are felony crimes. At the municipal level in Seattle, we have a municipal code where the offenses are similar, but add five categories, age, marital status, parental status, homelessness, and political ideology at the misdemeanor level. As you can imagine, at the municipal level, we don't see all of those categories being reported often. Primarily, we see crimes against homeless people or political ideology incidents. Let's start with the steep increase in attacks on Asian Americans. I understand this seems to be COVID-related. The media has picked up on it. I'm glad the media is interested in it. I'm glad we're talking about hate crimes. And what I would tell you is that across the board last year, 2020 was a year where we had, I think, you know, I'm working on finalizing that report for the year, but we're up like 56% for the year overall in all categories. <laughs> there was a lot of polarization and conflict and fear and those are factors that tend to result in high levels of reporting. It's impossible to divorce what is an actual increase in incidents, and I believe we had one, certainly, from people's inclination to report. 
know, during times of concern and fear, when people hear about other incidents, they're more inclined to make sure that their incident gets on the record, which is good. Anti-Asian incidents were certainly a particular concern over the past year. We started out the year kind of almost kind of like an on-pace number of anti-Asian incidents, but increased rapidly. A lot of our increased numbers are due to a couple of serial offenders that we had, but we certainly had more than we did. And, and at the beginning of the year, I was getting asked questions about, you know, are we having more? More is not really the question that we need to be asking necessarily. What we were really looking at was different content, different reasons. And sometimes those nuances are, are lost when we're talking about numbers. Let me also ask, how is a hate crime defined and why is it important to, for it to be charged as such? To really distill it down, a hate crime is a crime that's motivated primarily by hate, by hate against someone for who they are or what they represent to the offender, whether it's race or gender or sexual orientation or religion or any of the categories. That's the primary reason. That is not to say that we have not had crimes where it begins about something else and then clearly becomes about that. But that has to be the primary motivator. It's one of the only crimes where we have to prove the intent of the offender, which is really what makes them difficult and challenging. It's important that we identify these cases as hate crimes whenever we can, because these, you know, as we've seen, these cases don't just affect the victim who, who took the fist to the face or the spit or, or the victim of a you know an arson, it doesn't just affect that person. It affects everyone who identifies as part of that group. You know, one of the challenges that we have is that we can have a really horrible crime that people absolutely feel is a hate crime and they may very well be right. I never want anything we do, any charging decision that the prosecutor makes or arrest decisions that we make negate their experience. But it's a, it's a very specific and difficult challenge to prove state of mind. We have to have some evidence to suggest that that was the motivator, whether it's similar offenses against victims in that same category, whether it's something they say, whether it's something that they're wearing that indicates that, you know, tattooing or clothing that may signal an allegiance to a certain group that's anti another group or a bunch of other groups. You know, I will tell you, sometimes you feel like you've built a really strong hate crime case, but the jury doesn't see it that way. So they're a challenge. They're a real challenge. And I, but I think, you know, it's important that when we can make an arrest on a hate crime offense, that we do it. And Seattle certainly does that. I know that the prosecutors with whom I work believe that it's important to charge it whenever possible. And I think our record really speaks to that. And then the importance of it, I am assuming it would be in part for the victim to feel a sense of justice, but also I would believe that a hate crime carries with it a penalty that you want to make sure sticks. So it really depends. Well, let me start here. So hate crime offense is its own crime. It's not an aggravator, for example, meaning it's not something that we can tack on to an assault offense to make it kind of like an aggravated offense where they might add more time. It's a separate crime, which is a good thing in a lot of respects, meaning if we go into trial with a person who is charged with a hate crime and a felony assault, we are not reliant on the jury deciding that they are guilty of the whole entire thing, both crimes. They can choose 
not guilty of hate crime, but guilty of assault. It's, it's what they call severable. Even if they're convicted of both, what will happen is that the time they serve is concurrent. That is kind of a, a misunderstanding about how our hate crime law works. Like most laws, it's not a perfect one, but we have one. <laughs> uh, there are states that don't, and I, I feel like ours is, is pretty good. There are states without hate crime laws? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, one, I think one of the heartbreaking things is to see the state of Wyoming, for example, take a run at a hate crime law over and over. And I think, you know, if listeners remember, you know, Matthew Shepard was murdered in a hate crime in Wyoming. I remember that case. I imagine most people do as well. But for anyone who doesn't, what was Matthew Shepard's story? Matthew Shepard uh, was a young gay man going to school in Wyoming, and he was murdered in a horrible hate crime and left to die by himself in the wilds of Wyoming. And I think it's one of the cases that we that we think of in this country as a kind of a watershed moment about anti-gay hate crime, crimes against LGBTQ people. It's a crime that inspired a federal law. I mean, it's such an important case and it's incredibly disheartening to see that there still isn't a hate crime on the books in Wyoming. That is disappointing. One thing I want to return to, when we started out, you said anti-bias as well as hate crime. Two terms for the same thing? It really is. And I think it leads into another conversation about how we collect our data and how we make sure to identify all cases involving bias or hate. One of the things that Seattle does, and one of the reasons why we have such high numbers and know so much about the problem in the city, is that we cast a really wide net for information. We train our officers to recognize these cases, and we mandate by policy that they take a report, whether it's a hate crime, a crime with bias elements, or a non-criminal bias or hate incident. And I'll talk a little bit about what those entail. Obviously, we've talked about hate crimes. A crime with bias elements is another type of crime where we have other motivators, but bias enters into the incident. A good example of that would be, say we have someone who commits a crime in a business, like theft, and the security guard apprehends that person. The person fights them and calls them a slur in the process of trying to get away. That's something that we would document as a crime with bias elements. The other category that we gather data on is called non-criminal bias incidents. These are incidents, and sometimes either extremely hurtful incidents, where someone experiences someone, you know, for example, shouting a slur at them or saying, you know, you, you know, go back to your own country, you don't belong here, but no crime is committed. So it's a First Amendment protected speech incident, but, you know, it has the very strong bias or hate aspect to it. I'm really glad that we keep track of these incidents. There is some controversy about the fact that we do take these non-criminal reports, but we know more about what people experience. And it also really helps to identify folks who we may be able to intervene with. One of the things that's a feature of these cases in the city of Seattle is oftentimes our offenders have some mental health significant mental illness, giving them resources, contact, making contact with them, you know, can head off something more serious, uh, a hate crime. You know, if we can prevent someone from acting out in that way, we should, I think, uh, offer them the resources to modify their behavior if they choose to take that. It can also, you know, in a case where we have 
a hate crime occur and we are looking for incidents that might suggest bias, say we have no overt statement of bias in the hate crime that's offend or in the crime that's committed, but we have a whole history of hate non-criminal incidents where this person has expressed bias against that particular category, that would be really important for us to know about the motivation for the assault they committed. Our policy mandates that officers take these reports. I get notified of every one. I read every one. Our command staff is aware of these cases. So we really believe it's important. And I think that we have a policy to back that up. So let me touch on something you mentioned. And I read, as I saw a story in the Seattle Times, that article said that prosecutors are seeing more hate crimes committed by people who have lost access to mental health or drug treatment. In a case like that, how can you prove intent to commit a hate crime if this person is experiencing mental health or drug-related issues? You know, that's really up for the court to deal with. That comes down to competency. If we have an individual that commits a crime, you know, it's our job to bring them to that system and to have that system, you know, determine, you know, were they capable of making a choice about doing that? Did they understand the consequences of that? Can you talk about any particular crimes that have happened in Seattle against Asian Americans? The one that first came to my attention was an incident with a couple visiting from China who was who were walking downtown from one location to another on Virginia Street when they encountered a suspect who accosted them physically shoved and assaulted the male victim and then pulled down his mask and spat on them. What this offender said was something similar to it's all your fault or it's your fault. Meaning the pandemic. Meaning the pandemic. Near that same location, we had an incident where a woman was crossing the street and encountered a man, similar description, who spat on her and said something very similar to it's it's your fault this is this is because of you and then also around the same time same offender based on appearance based on video an older man standing on a streetcar platform the suspect walks up and doesn't say anything but punches the man in the face knocking him to the ground brutal attack uh, caught on video anyone being punched like that could be killed if not by the punch by falling and hitting their head that is a clear pattern of behavior of targeting Asian victims. So I guess that's, that's an example of what you mentioned earlier, a serial offender. I'm just thinking a random attack by someone who does it only once, that person has to be harder to find. Certainly. One of the challenging things about hate crimes and you know hate incidents is that typically we're talking about offenses that happen between strangers. I think one of the hallmarks of these of these cases is that the suspect is looking for someone, you know, who's totally unsuspecting. You know, we have crimes happen where the victim never saw the offender and we don't have witnesses. That's frustrating. Those are cases where we have nothing to go on. You talked earlier about reluctance to report. How much of a role does that play in your investigations or the challenges of your investigations? You know, it's it's a huge factor. You know, people may have had a bad experience with police and be afraid to report. People may have had a bad experience with police, you know, if they're an immigrant in the country from where they came. One of the things that I run into a lot is that people who don't speak English, for example, 
believe that the 911 system is for English speakers and that if they don't speak English, they can't use it. That's where outreach becomes incredibly important to let people know that, no, it's for everyone. Say the language you need. The dispatcher will get someone on the line who speaks your language to help you. We have those language resources. Oftentimes, misunderstandings about involvement with the legal system play a part. One of the things that I think of, and and this still makes me so sad, is there are people who are afraid that if they use this resource, it might keep them from becoming a citizen. Fears about immigration. They're very afraid that that reporting is going to bring attention to them. We never ask about immigration status at the Seattle Police Department. We would never provide that information to any other government entity. We really want people to know that you know, the Seattle Police Department, the 911 system, all of it is for them. It belongs to them. So please use it. We're here for you. And when you say outreach, is this proactively going into the communities and talking with citizens? Yes. And I do a lot of that. Going to entities that serve our immigrant population, our non-English speaking population, populations of color, you know, LGBTQ uh, service providers. We have a, a wonderful LGBTQ liaison, Officer Correo, who really focuses on, on that outreach entirely, which is wonderful. You know, and actually, you know, it's really the work of now retired Officer Jim Ritter, who was the LGBTQ liaison in 2015 when I came on. He had started the Safe Place program around that time. I think it really increased our reporting by a huge margin you know, certainly in the LGBTQ community, but I think across the board. Um, he was such an ambassador for encouraging people to report and really looking at the challenges that people were facing when they, you know, in the moments when they are the victim of a crime. So I was going to ask you about Safe Place. Tell me a little bit more about what it is. Uh, so the Safe Place program is a program where the police department will train employees and business owners to allow people to come in if they're the victim of a hate crime, to call 911, to allow the victim to stay there in a safe place until police arrive. It is indicated on businesses by a decal that says safe place. It's actually a fantastic national and international program. It's spread. Oh, that's great. Did the Seattle Police Department originate it? Yes. That, yeah, that, that was Jim Ritter's brainchild. He really, it was a real label of, of love for him, and he's very proud of it, rightfully. What kind of crimes have you seen in your work against the LGBTQ population? Oh, all kinds of crimes. The ugly slurs, the ugly language. They tend to mostly be strangers, but you know, one of the cases that I think of that was a, that's been adjudicated that I could talk about was a case where two men had gone to a house party. An attendee at the party started to target them, um, and when they tried to leave, physically attacked them and seriously injured both men. He was not a stranger. He was someone who was known to the group, and it was just a horrible crime. That is horrible. Really, not something you would expect. I guess none of these is something anyone would expect. I do tend to think of this as stranger-based. So thank you for that insight. And going back for a minute, I meant to ask when we were talking about outreach to the community, Seattle has also been in the news for the calls for defunding the police and the difficulty the department's having with a workforce that is decreasing in number. Does that impact your ability to proactively get out there? Yeah, I think it makes everything we do harder. 
it makes me worried about response times. One of the one of the things that I see a lot in my cases is you know, people in custody, people already arrested because people called 911 and the officers were able to respond in a timely way. I think that's crucial. When you're being assaulted, you want help to get there fast. You know, and if we just don't have the manpower for that, that just makes me ill. A lot of unintended consequences. I I know I worry about it all the time. I worry about, you know, the victims on my caseload, people who may become victims in the future. My worst, saddest fears are the ones where people are being victimized, are being actively assaulted, and there's no one to be to respond. Or we have so many cases that, you know, supervisors have to be very judicious in what is a sign for follow-up. I hate to see cases go uninvestigated where there's a possibility we might be able to catch an offender. And does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I I do a lot. And I think it would be wonderful to be able to do more outreach, to do more of the investigations myself, or a detective that understands these cases inside and out and you know how they're unique. But the number one most important role in this department is patrol officer. You know, you have to have people to respond in an emergency. And our numbers are are reducing and reducing fast. And it's not necessarily cuts in funding that's causing it. You know, Seattle has become a challenging place to work even more so than it previously was. You know, it seems to me that the rewards of your job would be obvious, but I still would like to ask you, what are the rewards for you? In the 24 years that I've been doing police work, I think this has been truly one of the most rewarding assignments I've had. I approach this job, you know, and this is going <laughs> to, you know, I say this with zero cynicism. I approach each, I approach this job and I've always approached this job with all my heart. I love it. My father was a police officer. My father and I have both seen police work as our civic duty. It's something that we do because we believe in helping everyone. We really want to make sure people who are vulnerable are cared for, to make sure justice is done, to protect everyone. Looking ahead, which is something I do a lot, I think a lot about how police work will change because police work will change. And I think it's important that we do. I think it's important that we hear everyone and protect everyone and really examine the ways that we can improve and truly do the best possible job. And I see that as my obligation in my own professional development to really understand all of the challenges and to meet them. What do you mean by police work will change? I I think it's an important time to take a step back and really look at all of the systemic aspects that feed into what we encounter. Because what we encounter is kind of the end result so often of flaws in our system, inequities in our system. And I think we also have to look at what role does the criminal justice system play in perpetuating inequities? I think we all have to be pulling in the direction that everyone's life is important. And I don't see any movement as an opposition to me. You know, I think that's an important perspective to have. I believe Black Lives Matter. And I believe that we have to all be pulling in that direction. How would this dialogue change if everyone turned toward this problem 
I have a lot of passion for that. I think it's just so important that we walk into the future with our whole hearts and a ton of courage to meet those challenges. You know, you've asked me what the rewards are of this job. And, you know, some of the rewards of this job are just really going to all corners of this beautiful city and meeting all the beautiful people in it and learning about their life, learning about their culture, learning about their needs, learning about what they want from us and bringing it back and being able to to modify what I do to meet those challenges. Everything's always changing. We have to change with it. And I think our officers are exceptionally capable of meeting that. And it's not popular to say, you know, put more money in policing, but I say put more money in policing. I want officers to you know, have access to more educational opportunities, more training opportunities, because one of the things that really changed me as a police officer was getting a master's degree in psychology. It made me a much different police officer. It made me more capable in different ways. I want the city to support that. We have such good-hearted, determined cops that just keep showing up no matter what. Let's build on that. We will always have a nexus to mental health. We will always have a nexus to violence within families. You want a, a fully rounded professional to show up to that. Certainly giving officers the tools they need to respond to the many different types of situations they get called to makes a lot of sense. And obviously you feel very strongly about this. Oh, I could cry about this. <laughs> I, you know, I would say that being a police officer is a huge part of my life and a huge part of my identity. It's a huge part of our family. My husband's a homicide detective. You know, we, when we're talking at the dinner table, we're talking about police work, our poor kids. But it's, you know, we feel that it's so important. It's such a mission for us to do this job well and to do it with courage. And I didn't ask you why you became a police officer. I usually ask that before I ask about the rewards. So what made you become a police officer? There's a reason there are a lot of second generation police officers. And I think watching my dad suit up every day to go protect people, you know, you can't be unaffected by that. He was so proud of his work. If you were to talk to my dad about his police career, he's been uh, retired for 20 years. He'd cry <laughs> because it's so of his heart, you know, and I, you know, being a protector is just such a part of what he taught me and protecting people who are weak or hurt or are small, or are children, or are disadvantaged in some way. It's just part of my DNA. <laughs> Police work is one of the jobs where, you know, where you're really in it. Like you are 100% in the real stuff of life. And I would have a hard time doing a job that didn't put me in contact with other people in a very meaningful way. I couldn't, I don't know how I would, how I would do that. It's just a very real job in the very real world. And that's the kind of life I want to live. In terms of racially motivated hate crimes, we've focused on the rise in attacks on Asian Americans, but I'm sure that our black and brown communities are frequently the victims of hate crimes as well. Absolutely. And I, you know, one of the things I would point out is that anti-black incidents are our number one category. And honestly, that's not something the media asks me about. But that has been our number one top category as long as I've been in this job. So tell me more about that. We have incidents that I think people either they don't think about it or think that's something that happens somewhere else. But anti-Black hate crimes absolutely happen in Seattle. Some of these are just 
unbelievable. I mean, just unbelievable the things that people say and do. You know, and that goes for all all three categories, whether we're talking about hate crimes, crimes with bias incidents, or non-criminal incidents of hate. It's it's not something I ever get asked about, and, and I'm a little mystified by it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I would be as well. Uh, it's certainly something I'm concerned about. It happens all over the city. You know, and that's that's another thing I feel like is important to talk about. There's an idea about hate crimes, and every jurisdiction is different. But there's an idea that somehow this is a situation where we have kind of people coming in from outside to do these crimes, or we have white supremacists coming in from outside to do these crimes. A person in Seattle who's a victim of a hate crime, is, they're going to be victimized by someone who's in their neighborhood, they're going to be victimized by someone who is on their bus or around their workplace. And I th- think the other thing to know is that our offender group is much more diverse than people understand. One of the questions I get asked almost always first, and I would say I get asked this question a lot by people who consider themselves very knowledgeable about hate crimes, is talk to me about white supremacy and white supremacist criminal activity in Seattle. And the truth is we don't have a lot of crimes like that here. We certainly do have some, and we certainly have incidents of flyering or stickering, hateful imagery, taping it to the door of a, for example, a, you know, a temple or putting a whole bunch of flyers on a, on a campus. You know, these are typically things that they do with their hood pulled up and glasses on and a mask on under cover of darkness. You know, not that any act of hate is not cowardly, but really particularly sort of cowardly acts. You know, I feel like it's important that people understand what what these incidents really look like, because until we know what these incidents really look like, how can we really understand how to address them? One of the categories you mentioned at the beginning of types of hate crimes was for disability. Could you tell me more about what those crimes look like? People with disabilities, you know, obviously have uh, unique vulnerabilities. And that can be a you know mental or physical disability. That can be a sensory um, disability. Are there any incidents or cases that you can talk about? You know, I remember one in particular, an incident where a person with a disability was on a bus, and another rider on the bus made a comment about you know the fact that they were in a wheelchair and you know did an assault. I think it's kind of an example of how cowardly these crimes are. You know, to assault someone who is particularly either not able to detect an attack coming or particularly unable to defend themselves from a physical attack really is kind of the pinnacle of cowardice, isn't it? Certainly is. Within the homeless population, what types of hate crimes are you seeing? I think people who are experiencing homelessness are are particularly vulnerable. They're also, I believe, a population that underreports. They're particularly vulnerable to retaliation. These are individuals who are unable to go into their home and close and lock a door. It's a situation where people are becoming less tolerant of seeing homelessness around them or in their neighborhood. I think of one incident in particular of an individual who was experiencing a level of homelessness. He was living in a motorhome. One of the things he said to me is he said, you know, I take pride in my in what I have. I keep it clean. I throw my trash in, you know, in appropriate places. I try to not impact the neighborhood around me negatively and I move according to the law. I do what I have to do. One day he was inside his motorhome and heard a car honking and encountered a man who had parked behind his car who was filming him 
and began shouting things about about him being homeless and really offensive, nasty, mean things about the fact that he was homeless. And the victim began to video record it and he you know, slapped the phone out of his hand. It went flying as indicated on the video and continued to, to just berate him. So I think a lot of the anti-homeless cases that we see are incidents where people have become intolerant of the situation, which is incredibly sad. It is. It is incredibly sad, and it's it's a difficult and growing problem. So, in my research, I've read that there have been hate crimes against the Jewish population in Seattle as well. In 2006, there was a mass shooting at the Seattle Jewish Federation in which six women were shot, one fatally, and I read that that was classified as a hate crime. I know that preceded your being with the Seattle Police Department. Since you're joining SPD, are there cases against the Jewish population that you have seen or worked on? The anti-Jewish cases that we typically have had in the past several years have involved defacement of property, spray painting, swastikas, or offensive you know, statements or imagery onto buildings, harassing phone calls. That tends to be typically what, what we see in Seattle. Uh, for anti-Semitic crime. So you talked very emotionally about what this profession means to you, how much you care about people, how much you want to help people. How does it feel then to see your profession under attack? You know, I think this is a time of change and I think there's a lot of emotion on all sides. One of the things that I'm deeply involved with is supporting my fellow officers' mental health. I believe that the officers that I work with are really devoted to trying to do the right thing by everyone. You know, it's it's an incredibly painful time. It's an incredibly difficult time. And honestly, we're a pretty traumatized population right now. <laughs> this last year, oh, officers were injured, certainly in you know, during that protest activity. I see my coworkers going to work in buildings that are kind of under attack every day. One of the things that I really think a lot about are ways that we can start to have conversations about these important topics. And I I think it's a mistake to exclude law enforcement from these conversations. And I think that's happening a lot. I see a lot of conversations that sort of cast about for information that we have, or they're trying to get a understand the landscape of what we're dealing with without asking us about it. And as a professional who really works hard to understand what we're dealing with and to understand not just the end crime that we're seeing, but understand what what led up to it or the challenges that we're facing or the challenges that victims are facing or the challenges that our offenders are facing that lead them to do what they do. It's very frustrating to be on the outside of that conversation. I worry a lot about Officer mental health. I were, you know, we saw what happened, you know, with the Capitol Police after January 6th. Everyone's kind of, well, maybe not everyone, but most people look at the suicides, right? And think, oh my God, you know, that's very concerning. And what I would say is turn some of that concern on your local police. (laughs) That's one of the things that I worry about most. And we in peer support and wellness are talking a lot about suicide prevention right now for a reason. We have a lot of officers who are experiencing post-traumatic stress. We're, I believe, headed kind of for more trauma. All the other bad stuff didn't stop. Officers are still experiencing really traumatic incidents out on the street. And a lot of the trauma that they experience is around helping other people, providing medical aid to people, 
Seattle police provide a tremendous amount of actual kind of trauma care in the field. And I think it's important that people know that. There are a lot of ways that we experience trauma. None of those things have ended. It's in, you know, what we've experienced in the last year was in addition to, you know, and one of the things I've heard a lot is I thought I had my PTSD that I was suffering with several years ago under control. I'm having a really hard time controlling my symptoms now. I one time had an officer say to me, after watching what happened in, you know, at the Capitol, I don't think I would have survived that. I think I would have died of it. You know, and and that officer wasn't talking about being murdered. That officer was talking about being unable to cope with the stress of that. <sighs> Sorry. I, I think about this all the time. <laughs> I've done I've done a lot of peer I've been doing peer support, you know, since about 2000 six. And, you know, during that time, I've seen a lot, we've lost a lot of police to suicide or to addiction. That's a whole other topic, but one that is very of my heart and one that I keeps me awake at night. Honestly, I'm thinking about it all the time. It's, it's very hard. I mean, all the officers I've talked to, their heart's in the right place. They do this to make a difference and it's very hard to watch. Well, and I, I think a lot of it goes back to giving us giving us the tools that we need to deal with the crime and the difficult situations that are non-criminal that we're experiencing. For example, we in this state are in tremendous need of better mental health care. And it takes something out of you to deal over and over with the same folks experiencing the same problems and having no solution but jail. That is not good for us either. We hate it. Cities, municipalities, counties, the state... I hope they take a look at that sort of investment because it's not good for anybody the way it's happening now. Well, now that I've upset you for the rest of the day. (laughs) (laughs) This happens to me once a day. I'm very passionate about a lot of things. (laughs) And that's a good thing. Well, detective, thank you for your time and your thought and your heart. And I really am, appreciate it. And I'm really grateful that you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for being endlessly curious about our work and, and us as people. I think you do a tremendous service humanizing people who wear the uniform. I appreciate what you do. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. That is why I do this podcast. And that is why I have been telling the stories of law enforcement for years.